Working out helps me sleep. After recording this, I am heading to the gym to work the lower body. Why tell you this? Because when I think about the right ventricle and pulmonary embolism, I sometimes think about squats. So keeping with that theme, it is leg day. And know this, gym friends don't let friends skip leg day. And once you are a decade or so into the sport, you're putting big weights on the squat bar. Not just a couple 45-pound plates on both sides, but real big weight. And you are going to bust out a big set. In fact, this day you are pumped and you are going to do 10 big heavy sets of 8 squats each. And ain't nobody is getting on that squat rack until you have handled your business. And despite some really big blood pressure elevations with all that weight, somehow your left ventricle handles it. You read these studies and articles where the systolic blood pressures are in the 250 to 320 range during heavy lifts involving the lower body and core muscles. And maybe it's not a great example since it is a transient stress on the left ventricle, but as many of my listeners know, I am a fan of natural bodybuilding and how else am I going to artificially squeeze lifting weights into a lecture on pulmonary embolism? Remember folks, the things that don't lie are drunk friends, little kids, and short shorts. Get your leg day done at the gym at a minimum once a week. And if you can easily sit down on the toilet the day after a leg day workout without severe soreness, you really didn't have a leg day. Was that really my point of all this? No, I just get distracted easily. My bigger point is that the left ventricle is pretty sweet and that it can somewhat adapt to high pressure changes for a while. You know what isn't that great in handling a new high pressure situation? You guessed it, the right ventricle. The right ventricle does not adapt well to acute high pulmonary artery pressures, such as from a large pulmonary embolism burden. Blood clots release factors that cause vasoconstriction beyond the clot burden itself, so it can turn into a disagreeable situation quickly. Getting back to the right ventricle, when the right ventricle can't do its job, your cardiac output falls. Cardiac output is the amount of blood ejected from the left ventricle into the aorta each minute. So why does that happen? If it is the left ventricle pumping blood to the rest of the body, why is it so dependent on the right ventricle? Let's put it in terms any healthcare provider who works in a hospital over the past decade at any point can understand. You know how we recurrently have had sudden pharmaceutical shortages for various reasons in the United States, and I'm sure this happens in plenty of other countries as well. And then a patient comes in and you can't give them the drug that would be just perfect for them. You didn't get delivery of the drug, you can't give the drug. And in a similar manner, if the right ventricle isn't delivering to the left ventricle, your left ventricle cannot output what it doesn't have. Your cardiac output is really the amount of blood discharged from the left or the right ventricle per minute. Cardiac output is determined by multiplying the stroke volume by the heart rate. In massive PE, you don't deliver the volume and the cardiac output falls. When the right ventricle suddenly has to pump against a big clot burden, it is not strong like the left ventricle. I mean, let's face it, the left ventricle eventually gets pretty stressed 
after dealing with uncontrolled hypertension and we see tons of left-sided congestive heart failure where hypertension is a major contributing factor. But in comparison to the left ventricle, the right ventricle has an even tougher time dealing with high pressure shifts. Now, let's talk about the septum the right ventricle has and the septum the left ventricle has. If you don't use my lectures to fall asleep, you are probably saying to yourself, wait a second, Gil Parat is either trying to trick me or he is as sharp as a marble and should only be conversing with plankton. You are saying to yourself, the left ventricle and the right ventricle have the same septum. Yes, they have the same septum, and I was just making sure you were paying attention because the mind can wander when listening to physiology. The interventricular septum separates the two ventricles. And also remember that when the right ventricle contracts, it pumps blood into the pulmonary trunk, and that pulmonary trunk splits into the right and left pulmonary arteries. And when a blood clot, or for that matter, another foreign substance, but this lecture is focusing on blood clots, when a clot obstructs a pulmonary artery vessel, that obstructs circulation to the lung tissue. You have a pulmonary embolism. Okay, so the right ventricle is working hard against an acute pulmonary embolism, and that right ventricle starts dilating. And as that right ventricle dilates, it starts pushing the interventricular septum between the right and left ventricle further into the left ventricle. What happens to the left ventricle function when that happens? The cardiac output decreases even further. This adds more problems to the other problem of the right ventricle not delivering the goods. The left ventricle becomes small and underfilled. So what eventually happens? A lot of bad things. One of them might be hypotension as the cardiac output drops. There can be other really bad things like right ventricle ischemia. But for the purpose of this lecture, I want to focus on hypotension for at least a few minutes. Because hypotension in the setting of pulmonary embolism should set off the same type of alarm as massive ST elevation in a chest pain patient you just got an EKG on. Acute hypotension in PE is a time to act, even if it is transient. This is where hospitalists on call can get into trouble. The nurse calls and says, the patient your partner admitted during the day dropped their systolic blood pressure into the 80s, but you were on the phone with two other nurses, so it took a few minutes for you to call back, and she checked it again while they were waiting for your call, and now the systolic is back up to 110. So it is 1 a.m., and you tell her to call back if the blood pressure drops again, right? No, don't do that. That patient is likely in trouble. The next call might be overhead for a code blue. That nurse just called you to tell you something equivalent to a patient with chest pain. She just checked an EKG on has ST elevation. Think about it. If she then tells you the chest pain went away for some reason, compared to when she got the EKG a few minutes ago, you wouldn't tell her, just call back if the chest pain worsens, would you? Same thing with pulmonary embolism and hypotension. You need to be thinking hard about thrombolytic therapy. In some places, the clot-busting options may include catheter-delivered thrombolysis, but in many places, the only option 
is systemic delivery of fibrinolytics. Now, there can be contraindications, such as recent surgeries or a hemorrhagic stroke, but you should be figuring that out because in new hypotension with acute pulmonary embolism, you need to defend why you didn't give TPA or other thrombolytic therapy rather than why you did give it. It is the current standard of care. And in your discussion of risk benefits with a hypotensive PE patient, you are telling them that thrombolytic therapy decreases their chance of dying. Clot reduction isn't the only thing you can do in an unstable PE patient, but it is the single best thing you can do unless there is a contraindication. Now, there are tricky patients that chronically run low blood pressures, and I have looked at some charts of PE patients and see that on prior admits, their systolic is often in the 80 to 100 range. In that situation, at a minimum, get an echocardiogram to see what is going on with the right ventricle. Time to quote from the 2016 update guidelines from CHEST. And what they say is, in patients with acute PE associated with hypotension, such as a systolic of less than 90, who do not have a high bleeding risk, we suggest systemically administered thrombolytic therapy over no such therapy. Hypotension isn't the only reason to give thrombolytics and pulmonary embolism. Sometimes there can be other issues, such as very poor gas exchange. So if clinical deterioration is becoming serious despite hypotension not being the biggest issue, the risk-benefit ratio may still be in favor of giving thrombolytic therapy. The guidelines do discuss that elevated cardiac biomarkers such as B-natric peptide and elevated troponins are associated with submassive and massive pulmonary embolism. Now, I've heard an expert who studies PE intensely state that we need to be very concerned about elevated BNP in pulmonary embolism. And I do understand that right heart strain is no good in pulmonary embolism. The concern I have is that so many of my patients already have elevated B-natric peptides. If you listen to my lecture on B-natric peptides, you also know that among a lot of comorbid conditions that elevate BNP, we now have CHF medication increasingly being prescribed that purposefully increases B-natric peptide. Clearly, we need to be careful about how much weight we give to a test and is the whole picture that we need to interpret. The reason I say that is at least in the past, and opinions are definitely subject to change, some prominent lecturers have indicated that an elevated BTMP in PE may be a good reason to give thrombolytics in the ER. I totally understand the controversy. I am just not there yet with them. Now, troponin, some have raised this as a very worrisome sign in pulmonary embolism, and clearly, it is never a good thing to see myocardial enzyme leaks. Elevated troponin, no matter what the cause, is associated with higher mortality, even when it is not from pulmonary embolism or an acute plaque rupture. And remember, the right ventricle can become ischemic in pulmonary embolism, but for whatever reasons, small troponin leaks have usually not freaked me out in pulmonary embolism patients. They raise concern just not big-time alarm bells because I've come to expect some elevation. Now, I am just one guy, but subjectively, 
it feels like more than half the pulmonary embolisms that I have seen have a small troponin leak. And I've seen a lot of patients with pulmonary embolism. It is possible I missed a lot of opportunities to offer thrombolysis, as I am sure some would argue. But it does seem, and again, I say this subjectively, so I'm not claiming it as fact, like the majority of troponin leaks I see from PE do just fine clinically. I realize also that mortality is not the only argument for thrombolysis, and later functional status is another consideration for thrombolytics. There are indeed studies that are important that functional status can be severely hindered in pulmonary embolism survivors and that thrombolytics decrease the respiratory and functional decline from happening. Again, I am very fallible, and it's possible some of my patients may have been better served for more aggressive care, even though I haven't subjectively previously realized it. And in medicine, we learn as much from past mistakes as we do from victories. Some of the gurus for using thrombolytics are the ones who did some of the important thrombolytic studies. And I think there's at least a subconscious desire to see your research become standard of care, and it has become standard of care for hypotension and deteriorating patients with pulmonary embolism. And I am not at all stating a bad intent because I think that a heavy promoter of thrombolytics that I listen to both live and on recordings not only knows a lot more than me about pulmonary embolism, but his intent is genuine. His intent is to increase survival and functional status, and those are both noble causes. I just don't want to see the pendulum shift to overly aggressive care. And as we all know, thrombolytics are heavy-duty drugs. And as we all know, we have seen that early, overly aggressive pendulum swing in pretty much every surgical and medical specialty in history. How many people have had knee surgeries, radical mastectomies, billions of dollars in bogus sepsis treatments like activated protein C, and then better data comes out showing we messed up. All I am saying is that I don't know where exactly this is all going to land with non-hypotensive pulmonary embolism in mildly elevated troponins not associated with right ventricular infarct. Maybe we are indeed missing huge opportunities to help patients with pulmonary embolism via thrombolytics in patients without hypotension or deteriorating patients with gas exchange issues. And I'm glad there are people pointing out that possibility because they indeed may be correct. If they weren't dangerous, we would give TPA to even small pulmonary embolisms to get rid of them. But the fact is, people die or become brain injured from TPA. So the decisions often raise a lot of anxiety, both for the patient during a risk-benefit discussion about TPA, but also for the care provider. But again, if it is a hypotensive patient with pulmonary embolism, the debate is pretty much done. You need to be thinking about reasons about why you are not giving thrombolytics and document it. That reason may be medical or patient refusal. Just make sure you have told the hypotensive patient without contraindications that the risk of dying is higher without thrombolytics. I would say that at a minimum, if a patient has a pulmonary embolism and an elevated troponin or BTMP, at a very minimum, get an echocardiogram to look for right ventricular dysfunction. Start putting the entire picture together 
from the clinical exam and overall appearance of the patient to labs to echo to imaging. You got to look at the other vital signs. I mean, sometimes people don't seem like they're very hypoxic, but then when you look at them or their vital signs, their respiratory rate is in the 30 to 35 range and they're in respiratory distress. That's not a stable patient. So that assessment of who should be given thrombolytic therapy versus who should be given anticoagulation alone can be challenging, and each situation is unique. And we keep learning so much more about this stuff, and that's where I really want to commend the authors for updating the guidelines in CHEST frequently. They're keeping it a living document, so important new data that impacts outcomes is refreshed. There are so many guidelines out there. I mean, look at the pneumonia guidelines. It can be so many years between publications, and you know of studies that completely contraindicate the guidelines, and because they are not refreshed, they are not accurate. But the expert panel report for antithrombotic therapy for venous thromboembolic disease that is published in CHEST and often updated, because as we learn new things, they're trying to get it to the bedside. All right, well, that's it for today, and I will catch you on the next round.